the book of John today, so I'm quite excited for this. And of course, we're going to start it with letting God's word have the first word. So, would you join me in the hearing of God's word? This is John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And John 17, verse 1 through 5 says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those You have given him. Now this is eternal life. That they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence. The glory I had with you before the world began. Heavenly Father, you are great. You are good. And you are kind to us. Lord Jesus, you are our Lord. You are our Savior. You are our life. You are the light. You are our hope. You are the vine that gives us the life that we have. And we ask today that that we would abide in your word, that we'd hear your word, we would We would be attuned to how you're speaking to us by the power of your spirit. And Lord, would you grant me mercy this morning as I handle um, precious truths with with clay hands, Lord, um, that um, you would be made much of. And we would um, love you all the more because of the hearing of your word today by the power of your spirit. So we love you. May you be honored. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. There is a deep-seated desire in the human soul to live forever, an irrepressible ache for immortality. We find this impulse in the most ancient of literature and the most current of media. It's, It's everywhere. The Epic of Gilgamesh is among the oldest stories recorded, and in it, Gilgamesh pursues immortality. He saw a friend die, he didn't want to die, he wants to avoid death, so he goes through a battery of tests, but he fails them all, he fails to become immortal. The first emperor of China who reigned during 259 BC to 210 BC also sought immortality. He sent out hundreds and hundreds of people time and time again to find the legendary elixir of life, but he failed. And allegedly he died of mercury poisoning after he had eaten too many mercury pills prescribed by the court doctors to make him immortal. So, don't do that. Uh, There are countless variations of the fountain of youth story, right? Throughout the ages, from Herodotus in the 5th century BC to, to Ponce de Leon and his explorations of Florida in the 16th century AD. The quest for magical waters, enchanted waters that bestowed immortality upon human beings enchanted the imaginations of people. Of course, we can always go to the Lord of the Rings for something, 
And so we have the immortality of the elves there. There's also various legends of the Philosopher's Stone, also called the Elixir of Life, that would grant immortality. And for some, this brings to mind what story? Harry Potter, right? And Voldemort's quest for immortality. Modern quests for immortality have traded enchanted waters and philosopher's stones for cryonics and cybernetics. Billionaires have poured untold funds into life extension technologies. Bezos, Page, Ellison, Peter Thiel are just a few of the super rich who have taken an interest in finding a way to become immortal. Now, the Bible also speaks of eternal life. And the good news is that the eternal life that the Bible speaks about is nothing like the life in these myths and these legends and these fictions I just mentioned. Because these stories, these myths, these legends, and for most modern people, what is meant by eternal life is simply this. Just living forever. So we think of quantity of time. An unending progression of days, that's what eternal life is. So for many, eternal life is what comes after this life, right? It's, it's what we commonly think of as, as heaven, living forever in some happy state. Growing up, that's what I often thought, that's what I thought Christianity taught. But it's, it's not quite right, it's just simply not sufficient. The biblical truth is far more beautiful and grand. The good news is that eternal life means much more than an existence that never ends. Eternal life is not a someday sort of thing. Eternal life is actually about flourishing right now and forever. The Gospel of John has much to say about eternal life. And so we're going to get into that because today we begin a new series in which we are going to be spending time with a master practitioner of the apprenticeship practice of Scripture meditation. We're going to be spending more than a few months, with John as our guide. John, the the disciple, the apostle of Jesus, will lead us. And the gospel that he writes could be called, and is often called, the gospel of eternal life. So here's what we're going to be doing. Over the course of this year, we're going to be looking at, uh, we're going to be feasting on key themes, patterns, and divine designs within the gospel of John. And we're going to tackle this in several volumes. So today... We start volume one called Signs of Life, where we look at the signs or the the seven key miracles that John curates, that he puts up on stage, on display for us to see who Jesus really is. And then later we'll go into other volumes where we look at crucial conversations that Jesus has, um, the seven I am statements, various prayers, and all sorts of other things. Now today we're going to get a brief Um, We're going to do a flyover, um, an overview of the book and get our bearings to get into our imaginations, the shape, the design, and the architecture of the book. So as we go through this over the next couple months, it makes sense to us what John is doing. Because what we have before us is one of the most brilliant pieces of literature uh, the world has ever seen. So I want to handle it well. I want us to read it very well. Now, as we get our bearings today, um, we're, we're going to um, look at the purpose statement. John tells us why he writes this, so that's going to be really important for us. Now, um, a couple words on John um, and the gospel here. John is the last gospel written. It's a bit different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? Those three are called, do we know, the synoptic gospels? 
like uh, optics, like sin optic, we, they, they, they're seen together. And then John, which tells us of the same Jesus, approaches things differently. And it's written later. John, at the time of writing this, has ink-stained fingers and is an old man. As a young man, his hands smelled of sweat and fish. He was once a fisherman on the shores of Galilee. He's a blue-collar guy. He was a bit salty in another way, too. He had a little bit of a temper, right? He was a young and passionate firebrand that Jesus had to calm down, tell him to breathe and chill out on, on more than one occasion. He was once an angry man that Jesus nicknamed Son of Thunder, him and his brother James, right? Sons of Thunder. Now, by the time he's writing this book, John is now in an aged apprentice of Jesus. He is a gentle shepherd of God's people who has long meditated upon the scriptures, long meditated upon Jesus' life. Now, um, John is a um, brilliant writer. He's a symbolic writer. And we're going to see these symbols play throughout. And so we'll try to open up some of those today. John's seen a lot in his life. I mean, think about this. This is about six decades after he walked with Jesus when, before the cross. Six decades before John walked with Jesus. He's had six decades to think, to pray, to meditate, to realize what Jesus was saying, to have the Holy Spirit lead him, to have the Holy Spirit teach him. And so he's been pastoring for all of these years now. And by the way, he pastored in a big, bustling city. A city that was very anti-Christ, very anti-Christian. It was a port city called, called Ephesus. So John knew what it was like to lead a distinctive community that used power and money and sex in their bodies in very unpopular and countercultural ways. And John not only, by the way, was the pastor of this community, but he was also the caretaker of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Remember on the cross, Jesus says to John, take care of her. And so John did the rest of his life. He took care of Mary until she passed. Now John, by the time he's writing this, is the last of the 12 disciples left alive. And he knows what it means to truly live. And it's this true life that John wants his readers to know well. By the way, um, interestingly enough, John's brother, James, the other son of thunder, he was the first of the disciples that was martyred, the first killed, and John is going to be the last one alive. So John died probably uh, around um, 98 AD, around the year, uh, he was about 100 years old, they think. He died during the Emperor Trajan's reign. Now, this John, just to, to be clear, this John was an apprentice called by Jesus called to be a fisher of men. He walked with Jesus. He lived with Jesus for three years. He ate with Jesus. He heard him teach. He was an eyewitness to the miracles. He was there when Jesus bled out and breathed out on the cross. John was one of the first ones to run to the empty tomb to see that Jesus wasn't there, to see that Jesus didn't stay dead. John was filled with the Holy Spirit. He was there in the upper room. He was commissioned to go and make apprentices of Jesus throughout the world. That is who is writing this book. And again, over six, six decades later, after meditating on these scriptures, John has something to tell us. And it seems to me we should lean in and listen to what he has to say. 
Now, at the end of the book, John tells us why he's written this book. So let's read that again. Near the end of the last chapter, John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written, all the accounts that he's put in this book, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John's concern is that his readers see who Jesus is. They would trust him and they would have true life in him, what John will call eternal life. And so John boldly puts forward an answer to a question that comes to every human being that rises from every one of our souls. How do I live the good life? How do I truly live? And everywhere, everywhere you look, right, people are looking for the good life, chasing after it, seeking it, grasping it, striving it. Commercials are selling it to us. There's rumors of it on social media, right? This is the good life. This is the way to be. This is the way to live. And John boldly tells us how we truly live. That life, it's only found. It's only found in Christ. It's a big claim, no doubt. Now, this book, the Gospel of John, is about the good news of eternal life. And before we explore what that good life is, that eternal life really means, let's see how he structures this book. Because the architecture is really, really brilliant. It is an artistic masterpiece. So I'll try to do this briefly. Um, don't get overwhelmed by this. Look at it in four big chunks, okay? Prologue, book of signs, book of glory, epilogue. If you break it down into those four big pieces, you'll be able to navigate through the book pretty well. Prologue, book of signs, book of glory, and the epilogue. Those are the four big pieces. So let me kind of just real quickly give us a tour of this. So it begins with the prologue, right? Chapter one, the first word. Now, the prologue functions kind of like an overture does in an opera or a symphony. You know what an overture is? An overture is the instrumental opening, right, before the main act, before the, before the scene one. And it gives you the essential musical ingredients that are going to be carried throughout the entirety um, of the art piece, right? So it gives you a few of the things, the themes, and, and then those things are opened up and explored and carried on throughout the rest. They're kind of like the seeds, the, the ingredients that are going the rest or the seeds that will open up and bloom throughout the rest of the work. And so the prologue is like an overture. By the way, the, the word overture is a Latin word, apertura. Uh, do we have any photographers in here? Aperture, right? So it is, it, this means, it, it's a word that means opening. So in other words, it's an opening to a piece of work, but this opening will open up into all sorts of other things. So these themes, these melodies, these notes that we, that we hear in the very first chapter, John will open those up and multiply them and amplify them and combine them. So it's really important that we, we spend some time in the series on chapter 1, which we will get to um, at a later date. Now, um, the first words. What are the first words of John? In the beginning, right? What do those words invite us to consider? When you hear those words, in the beginning, what do you think of? Genesis. John is telling us, I'm a student of the Scriptures. We need to go to the Scriptures. And when we think about Jesus, we need to go back to the creation of all things because of Jesus and the creation of all things go hand in hand. Now, John rewinds the tape even further back, though. 
He goes to the beginning before the beginning. He goes back to time immemorial, to God's self-existence, to the Father forever delighting in the Son, and the Son forever delighting in the Father, deep, eternal, Trinitarian life. And Jesus is the eternal Word, God's divine self-expression. This Jesus is the Son of God who came to dwell among his people, right, and to bring us life. And so the book, the Gospel of John, will act as a witness to who Jesus is. And not just on earth, but who the Son of God is in time immemorial, in time past, and in, in the future. Okay, so that's a little bit there on the prologue, which gets us all set up. Then there's the next movement. So we go from the prologue to what's the next major section? The book of signs, right? The book of signs. From chapters 2 to 12, John curates, he highlights seven miracles or signs that function to show us who Jesus truly is. And those seven are when he turns water to wine at the wedding in Cana. Beautiful, brilliant story. There's so much in it. We will dig into that next week. Then the healing of the official son, the healing of the paralytic, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, the healing of the blind man, and then the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And if you don't know these stories, and if you're new uh, to, to church, if you're new to the Bible, these are brilliant, and I'm so excited for you um, to, to read them. Sometimes I wish I could read them, you know, for the first time. Uh, but we will be going through these stories and, and unpacking how glorious they are. They're, just, they're wonderful. So the next seven weeks, that's what we will be doing. Now, throughout the book of signs, Jesus says, and he does all sorts of strange, mysterious, Jesus-y things, okay? He, he, he speaks in these riddles. People are going, What's, what is he talking about? They often completely misunderstand him. And there are counterintuitive outcomes to a lot of these encounters. And these miracles, they are signs that have a greater meaning. So John uses the word simeon, or signs. These miracles aren't just like trying to get something done. They're actually revealing a greater truth. They're loaded with meaning. So John picks these signs that show who God is, that show who Jesus is. So they're, they're pointers to larger truths. Now, at the end of this movement, we come to a crucial pivot in this story in the Gospel of John. So Jesus had done the most incredible thing. There's a dead guy, Lazarus, like dead for days. And Jesus brings him back and it just blows everybody's categories. The dead come to life. Then Jesus goes into Jerusalem as the prophesied king or Messiah. But rather than being honored, rather than being trusted, what happens? Well, the people don't believe him. And there's a murder plot that's hatched. They want to kill the one who just brought the dead back to life. And here's the hinge, the pivot of the book. You can see kind of right down the middle. So if you look at the book of signs over there, and then you flip over to the book of glory, where it goes from chapter 12 to chapter 13, that's a pivot, that's a hinge, right? It, it just operates like a door. And we're going to see some parallels between prologue and epilogue and the book of signs and the book of glory. They work together. They're like mirror images. It's, it's it's brilliant, so we don't have time. Oh, I need to keep on. All right. <laughs> um, so this takes us to the next big movement, the Book of Glory, which is chapters 13 through 20. So it's a contrasting parallel now to the murder plot and unbelief. Um, the, the meal, the Passover meal, is a contrasting parallel to this murder plot. We go from Jesus bringing the dead to life and then wanting to kill him 
to the Passover meal where he unveils, so to speak, the rescue plan, what he is about to do in Exodus style by which he will deliver his rebellious people from death. And he tells them, he shows them of his sacrificial servant-like love. From there, we move to chapters 14 through 16. There's a master class on apprenticeship here where he's teaching his disciples before he goes to the cross. He's showing them what it means to be a follower of Jesus. From there, we go to the high priestly prayer, chapter 17, one of the most radiant chapters in, in Scripture. And this is where the apprentices of Jesus, the disciples, get to listen in on this conversation between the Son and the Father. They get to hear Jesus pray to the Father, and it's, it's, it's beautiful. And then the narrative slows down. Jesus is arrested. We have... The passion, right, there in chapters 18 and 19, that's his suffering in the garden that's suffer- and his suffering on the cross. That's him dying. So we have the passion there. And then we move on to the resurrection. And the resurrection is actually the eighth sign. We'll come to that later. But if you think about the days of a week, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven is the last day of the week, then it starts over right? Day one. So that would actually be like the eighth day. The eighth day is like a new creation. So one week is over. The first week of the first day of the new week is actually the eighth day. So it, it, we'll get into this, sorry. But uh, it, it's talking about a whole new creation. Jesus rises from the dead. And this is the beginning of all things being renewed. So John will lead us into what that means. And then we get to the epilogue. The epilogue, this is the conclusion to help the reader see who Jesus is and and the implications of who Jesus is. And who do we say Jesus is? And then right before we go into the, the epilogue, we get that verse in John 20, which tells for the reason of the writing of the book. Now, um, this is really, really key. Do you see those big arrows? See John writes this book in such a way where if you read it for the first time, you get all this glorious truth. But he also writes it in a way where it's layered. So if you go back through it, right, you go up to the epilogue, and then you know, okay, that's why he wrote it. And then you go right back to the prologue and you read it again, suddenly new things will start to pop. And then you you cycle through it, and then you do it again, and do it again. Like John writes it in this recursive or cyclical way where he's saying, chew on this. Do this over and over and over again. And as you do, you will see who Jesus is. It is a book designed to be read and reread to meditate on for the rest of our lives. It is a book that is about the good news of eternal life. Now, what would you say is the most famous verse in the Gospel of John? John 3.16, right? You know it's like the most famous verse when it's on t-shirts, mugs, poster boards, at all the sports games, right? So it's John, all right? John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. There it is again, right? The radiant center of the gospel of John. But what does it really mean? What does it really mean? Because honestly, if you quiz most people, it means that when you die, you go to heaven, and then you just keep on being in heaven. That's what it means. Well, that is true in a way, but it's not a sufficient 
understanding. You could call that the transport view. It's like you die, he transports you to heaven, everything is right, and then it just keeps staying that way forever. But John puts forward more of what you could call the transformational view instead of just the transportation view. Like God doesn't just transport you to heaven someday. He's about us being transformed into the image and likeness of Christ, which goes on and on forever. Now, so this incredible verse isn't just about living forever. It's about living truly. It's about living truly. So the good news here is that we don't have to guess what Jesus means when he says eternal life here because he tells us in the book. And if we don't read the book in just bits and pieces and we read it all together, we come to chapter 17 where Jesus tells us what eternal life is. So we should probably know what Jesus says about eternal life. Right? So let's, let's do that. Let's go to chapter 17. Chapter 17. By the way, is chapter 17 in the book of signs or the book of glory? Nice. Okay, book of glory. See, right away it can, you can start to place these things when you know like this, this meta structure of, of the book. So chapter 17, the book of glory. Chapter 17, high priestly prayer. Okay, so now we're oriented. Let's read it. Verses 1 through 5. This is Jesus praying. Father, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, for you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. That sentence there, the glory I had with you before the world began, we've been reading the book of John, right? Remember chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning. See, you see this whole book just interweaves. It's just, it's so brilliant. And that's what I, I don't want us just to be like literature majors. Okay, that's not my goal. It's not my point. My point is for us to see the brilliance of this so we can see clearer and clearer portraits of the beauty of who Jesus is. And that would so ravish our imaginations that we would just want to stare at him and be with him and obey him and live in a different way. So that's why I'm going to nerd out with you guys in this book for more than a couple months. It's for the glory of Christ that he would be seen. So, so right here in the prayer, right, we already see a callback to Genesis 1. Okay. It wasn't in the notes. Moving on. So what is eternal life? What is eternal life according to Jesus? Eternal life is knowing God and Jesus. So a couple things here. I think I, yeah, I have them here uh, in the slide. Life. There's a number of Greek words for life. Three, three key ones. Okay? Bios, suke, and zoe. So bios. So that, that's where we get like biology, Right? Biology. That's physical life. That, the, so our English word biology comes from this word. But this is like the physical life of the body. That's not what he's saying here. He doesn't use that word. He doesn't use the word suke for life, which refers to the psychological life of the human soul, the mind, emotion, and the will. This is where our word psychology comes from. Right? He doesn't use that word. He uses another word for eternal life. That word is zoe. And this word means divine, spiritual life. God-quality kind of life. Okay, so when we're talking about eternal life, it doesn't just mean the physical body just lives 
forever. There's a physicality to it, but that's not the sum total of it. Next, the word for eternal. This, this will help us out, I, I hope. Ionios. This carries the idea not just of quantity of duration, but the idea of quality. It means the quality of or the characteristics of an age. So he's saying there's a, a new quality of spiritual life. And this new quality of spiritual life comes in knowing God, knowing Jesus. Now, to get at eternal life a little bit more, we need to do a little cultural historical work here. We need to put ourselves into the shoes of the original listeners of Jesus. So, um, let's talk a little bit about this present age and the age to come. I have a little chart here with circles. I hope this helps you. Um, but the Jewish people thought in terms of this present age and then the age to come. So, let me explain that. They thought, man, this world is broken and messed up. So we live in this present age. Okay, that's why you can have the circle all broken up there. Entropy, sin, it's just the darkness, it's a mess. But someday, God is going to fix everything. And we are going to leap into this new era, this new age in history called the age to come. And that's the age when the Messiah comes back and makes everything right. So you go from this broken, dark world, and then boom, you are in the age of the Messiah. You are in the age where everything is being made right. Shalom, peace, that's all in this age. So you go from this into this. That was the categories in, in which they thought. And they waited for that Messiah to come because this is a mess and this needs, the world needs to be more like this. Shalom and peace and all those things. Now, that's how they often thought. But then, God reveals the truth about it. And then Paul begins to believe this. The, the disciples, the, the followers of Christ begin to believe this. And, and it's not so much that we have that common view. We move from this present age to the age to come, but we now have a biblical view. And they're overlapping circles. These two ages are, are coming together, so to speak, and they're merging, and then we're moving into the, the age to come. So think of it this way. Um, here's the illustration. Light switch. Some of my rooms just have a regular light switch, Right? You walk in, it's dark, you flip the switch, it's light. Okay? That's the common view. But the scriptures, and what John teaches us, and what other books in the Bible teach us, is that it's, it's no, that's not the view. It's actually different. It's like a dimmer switch. You walk into a room, some of my rooms have a dimmer switch, and it's dark, and you slowly start to lift up the switch, and it's still kind of dark, but it's lighter, and it's lighter, and it's lighter, and it's lighter. Right? You see? Like the light is coming on. This is obviously built into nature, right? When day comes, does day come um, in one bright flash and it's suddenly noon? It goes like from midnight to noon? No, right? There's a, there's a small glow, you know, a reddish golden glow on the horizon, and then it gets brighter and brighter, and then it becomes bluish green and gold, and suddenly day, day is here, but it's coming, right? It's coming. And so this is how Paul sees the world. This is how John sees the world. In Jesus, the kingdom of, of heaven had come, had invaded, had landed, had erupted into the middle of, of the earth. Eternal life has invaded into a world of death. Heaven and earth are overlapping like a spring of living water, like bubbling up in the desert and bringing life and greenery to where it spills out. 
That's what's happening in the kingdom of God. Eternal life has entered into ordinary, everyday time. Does that make sense? I mean, it's this huge, categorical, mind-blowing thing, but hopefully that helps us a little bit with how they saw what was going on with this eternal life. Now, what this means then is that eternal life does not begin someday when you die. Eternal life begins now within history when one comes to trust Jesus. So let's look back at our verse, chapter 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now what does this word know mean? To know God does not mean simply to know about him or to know of him, right? Like, I know about Steph Curry. Like, yes, even me, right? He, he plays sports and stuff, right? Yeah, okay. I know, I know about Steph Curry. I don't know him. There's a difference in, in knowing, right? You can have data. You can know of. You can know about. But then you actually know someone. A bunch of you know of my kids because they're always in the sermons. You know about my kids, but you don't, you don't know them. Maybe you'll get to know them. But there's a difference. One is experiential. One is more data-driven and abstract. And this word know is a Hebrew word, yada. And it means to know relationally, to know experientially. This is the word used when it says Adam knew his wife for their, their intimacy, right? Their relationship that produced kids. He knew her. There's, there's, there's an experiential relationship. And so this verse is talking about an experiential relational knowing. Eternal life is a loving personal relationship with God. It is to have union with God through Jesus Christ. And the love relationship that the Father and the Son and the Spirit always had and always will have, now suddenly we are brought into. So Christianity is not, is not some simple thought system. Christianity is not just some new moral code. Christianity is, is this incredible thing that says God has done something within history and so loved you that he has brought you into his eternal communion of love between him and his son and the spirit. Now your life is radically changed and you are a partaker of the divine nature. You share in the very life of God. So pause. So if somebody says, well, Christianity is just like any other religion. It's all just about you know, being a good person categorically, fundamentally, that is false. This is radically different. It's God bringing his life into our very soul because we're united to Jesus Christ. Isn't that mind-blowing? It's incredible. So It's so important. John will we'll get into this and hit on this over and over and over again. Okay, so in him we come alive. In him we are partakers of the divine nature, according to Peter. And C.S. Lewis knew this well. This is what animated so much of his thought in writing about Christianity. In mere Christianity, he said this. He said, A man who changed from having bios to having Zoe would have gone through as big a change as a statue, which changed from being a carved stone to being a real man. And that is precisely what Christianity is about. 
the world is a great sculpture shop. We are the statues and there is a rumor going around the shop that some of us are someday going to come to life. This is God's plan all along, you know, to be united with his people. He created the world, he created humanity, put them in the garden to walk with them, to dwell with them. But then Adam and Eve are alienated from him, right? They're isolated from him. They're sent away from the garden because of their betrayal of God, because of fractured reality. They are sent away from the garden, where in the middle of the garden, there's a tree, there's two trees, the tree of, the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, separated from eternal life. God's great goal for all of history is that the world would be drawn into his triune love. The history of redemption is that we would know him, that we would be his people, and that he would be our God. And we would enter into this eternal relationship of love. To be drawn into love, to be delighted in and delight in God, is to know peace, it is to know joy, it is to become more truly human, it is to be who we are created to be. So, the good news about eternal life, the good news about eternal life is it is a present reality. Because of Jesus, we now and will forever share in the very life of God. And we will continue to learn a great deal about what this means um, throughout this, this series. And so at this point, um, I want to try to summarize and clarify because I know those are a lot of big lofty thoughts and it might feel like clouds that you're trying to grab after. So what is God's will for your life? We ask that all the time. God, what's your will for my life? Well, the scriptures tell us what his ultimate will for our life is. In John 6, 40, this is the will of the Father that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. So what is God's will for your life? Eternal life, that you have life in Jesus. Okay. We're in, we're in agreement on that point, right? Okay. So what is eternal life then? What is eternal life? Well, it is to be in a personal, loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Okay? A loving, personal relationship with God. It is a divine life of God within us. We share in that life. This eternal life is not just of quantity, it's of quality. Okay, so that's clear. It's a big idea, but it, it's, it's clear within Scripture. When does eternal life begin? When does it begin? Now, you're both right. Now and when we trust Jesus. It begins now in this life when we have entrusted ourselves to him. Deep personal change is a present reality because the spirit of God, which brings the dead to life, lives within us. And if you feel stuck and you feel like there's no way to change, you're not seeing the gospel truth that God has granted you his spirit and there is nothing he cannot do. Deep personal transformation is a present reality. Renewal begins now, not someday. And we always want to push it off to someday. Oh, someday, someday, someday. And we forget to live. And we don't drink of the waters of life. It's just someday. Like God forbid we be a people who say life is someday and not now. Joy is not deferred to the future. It is now. Next question, how should we respond to the gift of eternal life? Well, John chapter 15 goes a long way in helping us here, but what we should do is we should cultivate our relationship 
with God, by delighting in our union with Him, by marveling at this reality that we are united to Christ because of His work, and abiding with Him, being with Him, praying to Him, reading His Scriptures, and then obeying Him, listening to Him, trusting Him. We cultivate it. It's not just a one and done, I'm great, I'm saved, I'm united to Christ, moving on. Like, No, like this changes everything about your life. And then this question, what are the signs that you have eternal life? Now, I know I'm jumping books here, but Galatians chapter 5 helps us here. What are the signs that you have eternal life? Well, your inner person is transformed, and you will be growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And what are these? The fruit of the Spirit. And how does the fruit of the Spirit grow in us? As we walk in step with the Spirit, as we walk in accordance with who we now are in Christ because His divine nature is given to us through the power of the Spirit. And like a vine and a branch, right, the, the, the life, the energy flows through that vine into the branch and produces the fruit. If we are those with eternal life, we will be growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc., We won't be done, we won't have arrived, but we will be growing in those things. Indicators of life, vital signs of eternal life. Question, where is the present eternal life heading? Where is all this heading? Where is it going? Well, John 6, 40 and 11, verses 25 through 26, which you can note and look up later, um, tell us that we will one day be given resurrection bodies and become like Jesus that is such good news. Steve, does your body groan? Does your body ache? He's going to give you a new body. You will be restored. We will run. We will race someday and you'll probably just destroy me. He will give us a new resurrection body. And we will become mature in Christ, and we will be like Jesus. What hope we have. What hope we have. Death will not take away the divine life that we are given in Jesus. Death is merely a transition. The good news of eternal life is that it is a present reality for us. Because of Jesus, we now and will forever share in the very life of God. Now, my, my closing encouragements to you um, are twofold. One, would you just join us in meditating in the book of John this year? Join us, keep coming back on Sundays to hear the word spoken, to meditate on this stuff corporately. See what the Lord would have for you in leaning into the fact that the life of God lives within you who lives in Livermore, California, or Pleasanton, or Dublin. And see what he's going to do through you realizing that, through reshaping your imagination and acting in accordance with that truth. Second, I would say this. Please don't someday your life with God. Don't someday your faith Don't someday your Christianity. Don't say someday I'll have peace. Don't say someday I will have joy. Don't say someday 
you know, I'll, I'll obey. Someday I'll follow. It's now. The Spirit, the life of Jesus Christ lives within you now, which means peace, no matter the chaos that you live in, is granted to you, which means hope, no matter the darkness that you're in, is granted to you, which means joy, no matter the the brokenness and the sadness around you and the difficult things we experience and the tears we shed, joy is granted to you because this is a present reality in Christ Jesus. Eternal life starts now. Today is the day of salvation. So let us live like it. Let us enjoy divine life as he has given it to us. Now you know um, those ancient desires to live forever found in myths and legends, those aches for immortality, those quests for philosopher's stones and fountains of youth. They just testify to the truth. They tell of our origin. They tell of our destiny. They point us to Jesus because in him and in him alone does the life of God enter into the life of men. Father, uh, we need you. We love you. Thank you for the good news of who you are and what you're doing. Lord Jesus, we thank you for coming to this world, for dying on a cross, for rising from the dead, and breathing your breath into us that we might have deep, loving intimacy with our Creator and that we might be made whole. We love you. Um, We now come to this table to confess and to feast on the truth of who you are and what you've done. I love you. Amen.